And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello and welcome, everyone, to Earth Destruction Directive. I am your host, as always, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. I'd like to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show today. Hope everyone enjoyed our last episode where my brother and I took a look at Dai Majin Strikes Again, the third and final Showa Dai Majin film from Dai Pictures. Uh, uh, we're shifting gears a little bit today. We're covering, uh, we're back to television. We're covering the next episode in the classic Subaraya production series, Ultraman. And I do mean we in a very real and literal sense, as I am once again joined by a guest. Uh, please, everyone, give a warm Earth Destruction Directive welcome to Professor Allen. Allen, thanks for being here. Oh, Luke, it's a pleasure. Anytime I can talk Ultraman, I'll take that chance. Take that opportunity. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, better to do it here than, you know, in, like, staff meetings or uh, on public transportation or anything like that. So I'm not saying it's never happened. <laughs> I'm not saying it has happened. Okay. <laughs> I can neither confirm nor deny the number of tokusatsu conversations I've had with random normal people. But um, <laughs> and, well, uh, and, and academic colleagues, who, that, that <laughs> and normal people, two very different categories. Yes, yes, uh, absolutely. Um, so, uh, Alan, you've you've been a a big uh, a big supporter, always giving us. Uh, pre-feedback for Ultraman episodes as we've been covering it. So when I got to to this particular episode, I said, oh, we uh, need to get the professor on here. We are taking a look today at episode 23, My Home is Earth. And we will get to that right after this quick break. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen. And I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. And we are back on Earth Destruction Directive. Now, Alan, as I said before the break, you've always been a big supporter when we've covered Ultraman here on the show uh, and, and we've actually never had a chance to record about specifically Ultraman. It always seems to come up whenever we record, right. but <laughs> not specifically. So uh, what what is your origin with Ultraman, your ultra origin, as it were? It must have been when I was five or six, uh, early 1970s. And the weird thing is I must have watched it on various TVs because I, I think I may have shared, shared this with you in an email years ago, because in my mind, it was a black and white TV show. Mm-hmm. But then again, I have the silver and red of Ultraman himself, and of course, those bright orange outfits. Those are also part of my memory. So I'm trying to figure out how can both of those exist? Well, it's probably the black and white TV in the kitchen. <laughs> And the color TV downstairs, or whatever, whatever combo is. Is once I started watching the DVDs, I thought, of course, this isn't a black and white TV show. What are you thinking? <laughs> it's very strange, very strange memories. And mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure they threw in, they must have run Ultra Q and Ultraman, and maybe a couple others, because I, I've gone through the, the DVD a couple of times. 39 episodes i think somewhere in that in that ballpark yeah and i'm sure there were some that i saw that weren't in those sets 
Mm-hmm. So they must have done some sort, of, and that would only be eight weeks of eight weeks of, of syndication. So they must right. have had they must have had more in there. And just in my mind, it all got got conflated into one into one series. Yeah, typically in the United States, we'd think sixty five episodes to strip a series right. daily for syndication. So yeah, that's and and the the interesting thing about just the ultra series in general, Ultraman specifically, is that depending on where you were in the country. You got it at different times and in different syndication packages. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know I've had conversations a long time ago with a listener who grew up in Hawaii. And in oh, Hawaii, wow. it was very common to get the Japanese shows. You had a fairly large uh, Japanese-speaking population. Sure. And with the relative distance, it was relatively easy to, to broadcast and pick up those those signals. So um, not only shows like Ultraman, but shows like Kikaider. Or common, I think Common Rider V three also was aired it in Johnny Sacco. You mentioned, uh, at, yeah, at Johnny, Johnny point, Sacco was that in the show. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure I saw that as well. And I, I can't remember if they would have been back to back like an hour block, or if that maybe that's what they did to supplement when they got to the end of the run of Ultraman. That was yeah. through that on to to to, uh, to stretch it out. Uh, yeah, that's. I mean, it's 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 one of those great things to me about. Yeah, I see growing up in, in the 80s in New York, syndicated television was still kind of a big deal because I had WPIX and all that. So, mm-hmm. uh, so I, you know, I, I first encountered Ultraman in syndication as well, except it's not Ultraman like we're thinking. It's Ultraman Towards the Future from 1991, 92 was the first oh, Ultraman wow. I encountered also, yeah. but syndicated on, on Channel 11. So it's always this, this thing that they said of how different syndicates in different markets handle shows that are imported and, and even even domestic shows how they handle them it wasn't until really we started getting into the really the really high budget first run syndicated shows like star trek the next generation that we saw a lot right. of consistency so it's always fascinating to me talking to people who grew up in a in a different region of the country in a, in a different um time period how those syndicated you know shows were handled i know and uh, not not tokusatsu related but tom panneries did a whole series on syndicated television oh, growing yes. up in new york and it was like <laughs> oh my that, that that was that was dangerous for me because it was just a flood <laughs> of memories going back i mean <laughs> i this for me this would have been channel 20 out of washington dc or channel 45 out of baltimore right because mm-hmm. you know this was this was clearly uhf fodder Absolutely. uh probably early mornings before school and I do remember that I watched some of it must have been early enough in my life that I was really concerned when that light started blinking. Oh, yeah. That this was the one. This was the one he wasn't going to make it through. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I was whatever age it was, I was young enough to be sincerely worried. Well, sounds like the crew at Subaraya did a good job. Then. They, they had you invested as a viewer. Exactly. Exactly. That and that and I was I I, di- I didn't know that Batman was going to get out of this death trap. You know, you mean it's glorious to be young enough to be really worried about that. Yeah. <laughs> Mom, the penguins got him over, and the sharks, and there's I don't know what's going to happen. Ultraman, this thing's blinking. He only has this many seconds, and the... <sighs> oh, to be young and innocent, Luke. Uh, the youth, the youth truly is wasted on the young. I, I, I feel that more every day, <sighs> but, uh, although just a, a sneak preview, a discussion of this episode in particular, this one must've gone way over my head. Oh, oh yeah. There is a heck of a lot happening here in the plot, in the direction, in the cinematography. I, 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 I can't imagine what a pure innocent six-year-old must've thought watching right. this because I, 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 I it's a, that's probably why I blocked it from my memory <laughs> <laughs> uh, well with, with that as a uh, as an intro why, why don't we I don't know if I can live up to that hopefully with my synopsis so uh, <laughs> so our episode my home is earth is the 23rd episode of Ultraman originally aired December 18th 1966 on Tokyo Broadcasting System uh, it was directed by Akio Jisoji uh, the screenplay was by Mamaru Sasaki. And what's interesting is that that is the same uh, screenplay writer and director as the previous episode, Overthrow the Surface, which featured the monster Telesodon and the underground people. And we had comment, we had discussed when that, when I covered that episode about 
kind of the cinematography choices exactly. in that one. Yes. Yep. And and the script as well, that the script was kind of trying to, uh, you know, touching on Cold War espionage type story, but in a science fiction setting. So I think it's interesting. We got two very well-written and very interestingly shot episodes from the same crew back to mm-hmm. back here. Yes. So, um, and as that aired, uh, aired right in uh, December, writing, heading about a week before Christmas, interestingly enough. Um, our cast is the usual cast that we have in uh, all the episodes, and uh, our story goes a little something like this. Planes and ships are mysteriously exploding in Japan during the run-up to an international peace conference. Along with Agent Allen, eh? Eh? Yes! From, yeah. <laughs> Along with Clearly, I didn't see this as a kid, because I would have remembered that, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My- Along with Agent Allen from Paris uh, HQ, the Science Patrol investigate. The team finds a strange, invisible UFO, which has been causing the wrecks. Unable to stop the invisible ship, Ide develops a trio of weapons which are able to make it visible. The Science Patrol then shoots the UFO down, revealing its pilot, a huge, vaguely humanoid monster, which Allen calls Jamala. The Science Patrol engage, but Jamala runs and hides in the forest. Camped out overnight, the truth is revealed. Jamala is not a monster, but a human. During the space race, Jamala was an astronaut who was launched into space, but was then unable to return to Earth. Wandering the cosmos, the Science Patrol speculate that Jamala must have found some strange planet, and his struggle for survival there changed him into this massive creature. Ide declares that he will not fight Jamala a victim of the rush of scientific advancement. The other patrollers sympathize, but tell Ide that Jamila is now a threat to the whole world and that they must stop him. The next day, the self-defense force attack with fire, but to no effect, as Jamila continues to seek out the peace conference. The SDF then tries rain bombs, and the water hurts Jamila. Hayata, having saved a young boy from Jamila's rampage through a small village, transforms to Ultraman and confronts Jamila. Ultraman uses the ultra-water current technique, driving Jamila to the muddy earth. The man-turned-monster dies on the steps of the conference and is given a funeral by the Science Patrol. At the conference, a plaque dedicated to Jamila is erected, but Ide's disgust at the entire situation remains. So, Alan, like you said, there's a a lot going on here from a, a plot standpoint and this was one that, um, you know, we, we've had some more serious episodes and some more silly episodes so far, but this was the first one of, of this series that really took a, a very serious approach to the subject matter and really kind of made, I think, was taking a more philosophical approach rather than a, a science fiction or mm-hmm. uh, an intrigue approach. The uh, the booklet that went along with the the DVDs that I was watching this from talked about the the director uh, Jasoji, and said that he never considered working on Ultraman as making a kids children's TV show. Mm-hmm. So I just gave it my all and put as much of my personality as I could into it. And he really brought a modern avant garde mm-hmm. sort of look and and take. To, to the episodes and a and a serious and and you know wherever that 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 script came from you know a serious script and and serious discussions and dialogues it's it's a it's an amazing terrific little episode yeah that this one more so than any i wouldn't say more so than a lot i should say because there are others that are similar it reminds me more of an episode of ultra q and I don't know if you've watched Ultra Q, but for the benefit of our listeners who maybe haven't and are not familiar with Ultra Q, um, Ultra Q, of course, was the predecessor show to Ultraman and was a giant monster show, but not a giant hero show. So there was a team of investigators that went and investigated uh, strange goings on all over the country, and it was inevitably investigating a monster. It was like a, a Daikaiju movie in 22 minutes, basically. And that was, uh, it was, it was, I've heard it described as like a show, a version of the X-Files, basically. <laughs> and, and that's pretty accurate. And again, there, there's more and less serious episodes of that. But you almost get the feeling that if you take 
Ultraman out of this, this could be an Ultra Q episode. If you have the SDF kill Jamila instead of Ultraman, mm, right. this would work on that level. The the Science Patrol, there there is some action with the Science Patrol hunting the UFO, and then there is um, you know uh, scenes of Jamila destroying the village and the SDF fighting him, and then the fight with Ultraman, which we'll discuss in a little bit, which is also very different than what we'd normally expect. Yes, but it's but it it really does hinge on the the plot even more so than the than the um, the you know the, the and, and even not not so much the plot as in this happens and this happens and this happens but the questions that it raises mm-hmm. you know this um, what I and, and I we were talking about this a little bit before we were recording um, I've re- I recently recorded an episode of the Monster Island Film Vault with Nathan Marchand we talked about Battle in Outer Space which was right around the same time. Well, now about, about five years earlier than this, but it still dealt with the idea of international cooperation and Japan being mm-hmm. in the post-war period, uh, a part of the world community, not being a, you know, the, the one in charge, but being the one that was cooperative and everyone working together. And here we have a, a you know, a, a not uncommon setup, a peace conference that's being threatened, but from some external threat, but then the external threat is more of an insider threat. It's mm-hmm. saying that, you know, it's, it's this, I, I love the idea that it's this international peace conference and here's someone that the international community failed and covered up and wanted everyone to forget about. And now they, uh, you know, if, if you'll pardon the phrase, the, the crows have come home to roost. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> so he's, uh, and, and in a very real and literal sense that, that he, that, that Jamila is out for revenge against those who wronged him. And, 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 but at the same time, but we don't, we, we feel sympathy for him because he was legitimately wronged and abandoned in, in this race for scientific advancement. Yeah, but it's not science gone wrong. It's government, military, industrial complex, perhaps, gone wrong. I mean, it was the equivalent of NASA. Mm-hmm. You know, NASA going wrong with a helping of cover-up from the rest of the federal government. Right. And, that, and that's an interest, very interesting, fascinating take. Like yeah. you said, with the setting of, you know, a UN-style uh, uh, peace conference. Yeah. Again, especially for, I mean, I would, I would expect a story like this in the Heisei era. Um, and, uh, in, once we got into the Heisei era in Godzilla, we got more of these type of, um, politically ambiguous type of, of stories. But in the Showa era, this, this really stands out as, you know, the, the idea that, again, the very Showa era concept of through cooperation, we can achieve greatness. It's like, well, but you know, it's like there, but there's still that human nature of, of being distrusting of large governments, or I said the military-industrial complex, as you said. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but so yeah, so it's from a story standpoint, it it really stands out. And then on the other side of the coin, the production standpoint, um, you know, I we had mentioned that uh, Jasoji also directed Overthrow the Surface, which was shot like a like a film noir. In, in this one, this is a very kind of intimate and immediate story. And I love that Jasoji uh, shoots a lot of it in close-up and a lot of it with handheld. There's a mm-hmm. lot of use of handheld camera. And, you know, this obviously being the uh, 66, this is before Steadicam. So when you say handheld, that makes a very, that immediate, realistic, um, you know, almost candid sort of, of uh, framing to the shots. And it re- again, it makes it look different. This is the, the it's there's you know it's it's interesting because this is so early in the ultra series that a lot of the tropes are still kind of being codified but even then when they break away from what those tropes are it stands out so visually this one really stands out as well mm-hmm. but in 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 addition to those visual and production directorial ties to the prior episode the that prior episode all there's a sort of plot elements too because the prior episode our, our our mysterious woman was from the Paris Bureau so we have them again working with the same their same colleagues I guess mm-hmm. yes. so you have sort of that uh, that uh, continuation or uh, continuity as well but it's some uh, absolutely uh, uh, terrific things he's mentioned that camping scene mm-hmm. that uh, overnight scene I mean it's very dark there's a, a shot 
all you've got is you got some fog. You have a couple of the uh, a couple of our our uh, uh, science patrol officer smoking, so you get mm-hmm. fog and smoke. And there's one scene where it's black and dark and huge bright pops of orange. Yes, <laughs> from you know from their their outfits as they are sitting, having mm-hmm. an actually very intense conversation. Yes, uh, as as well you mentioned, you know, Ides, you know, uh, strong feelings, you know, at that at that campground scene, you know, as they're learning this information from Alan or mm-hmm. Al- Al- Alain, as as one of it uh, was, uh, the uh, occasionally called in the in the uh, in 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 the dubbed version, that French version of Alan, but he, uh, um, you know, during that, you know, there, I mean, this is a kid show. And you've got yeah. adults having pretty serious conversation, discussion, debate, disagreement. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're on they're on you know different sides, you know, all all uh, you know, sides of the argument as to as to whether Jamila is he still a man? Do we still count him as a human, or is he a monster? You know, where on that scale does he fall? And the folks having this discussion have different opinions about that, mm-hmm. and just that alone <laughs> causes it, causes it, it 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 to stand out from a plot and dialogue, a story setting, mm-hmm. you know, for a you know show with a theoretical audience of six and eight and ten year olds. Right. Yeah. And and it does. And it to a degree, it does service that. I said we do have. Um, actually it's, it's, it's really very amusing to me in that in the first half of the episode, we have, um, uh, the, the, uh, we have the scene where the science patrol, it's Ide and Fuji in the jet VTOL are chasing after the UFO and Ide can't manage to hit it. He's got the Mars 133 gun and he can't hit it because it's moving so fast and it's invisible <laughs> and Fuji's given him the business. You is know? she flirting with him too? I, <laughs> she almost is. It is. Yeah, I could not figure yeah. that out. They, they have, yeah, because I mean, Fuji's, they have a fun and and light relationship. Yeah, yeah. Ide being, he's because Ide plays kind of a dual role, right? He's he's always been the science guy, and he's also the comic relief in a lot of in right. a lot of uh, cases. So Fuji gives him the business. It's like I remember back to the uh, Gama Kojima episode. Uh, where at the where at the end Fuji makes him uh, as to pay her to pay her back for all the insults, uh, makes him take her shopping and he's carrying all her bags <laughs> yes. through the Ginza. Mm-hmm. Right. So right. it's it's it might be it, to me it's like it's it's yes. one of those I I think it might be hard as a Western viewer to say okay is it flirting is it younger sister big brother is mm-hmm. it you know professional ribbing but she but she really gives him the business yes. in this about you really shouldn't miss that badly you know when you're shooting <laughs> uh, and, and but then but then we get to see she does when when Ide is in his lab trying to uh, you know figure out some way to create a weapon to make the UFO visible you know she brings him his coffee and she's very sweet to him so now, in, but in my yeah. defense I've been in love with Fuji for almost 50 years so oh, yeah. Yeah, she's <laughs> I may that may have been my jealousy, <laughs> but yeah, I like just but, uh, er, early on when they're trying to explain the, you know, this idea of this thing moving so fast you can't see it. You have like visual aids. It's like Mister Wizard, right? You, have, you spin the bicycle so fast he can't see the spokes, or you spin the color wheel so fast that all you know, distinction is lost. It's like, okay, they are doing a kid's science show, right? but also doing this other stuff. Yeah, so it, it's, it, it does service, like I said, both, both audiences. The, um, and the, the other part of the, like I said, servicing the, 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 the kid audience is there, there is a fair amount of scenes with Jamila, like I said, fighting the SDF, stomping. He stomps through a village, which I thought was an interesting choice rather than uh, a city or, or we've, we've seen, we've seen some actual city destruction right. recently on, on the show, but this was a village, which in 1966, again, would not have been out of place in Japan in the, in the more rural areas. Um, but, uh, and then the, the fight with Ultraman, 
Jamil has always struck me as a very strange monster. There are there are humanoid monsters, and I'm putting that air quotes up to the mic because most of the humanoid enemies on Ultraman are aliens rather than monsters. So we, you know, like the uh, like the Balton or uh, the Dada, you know, anything that has Sajin after their name, basically. Um, so here he is a monster that is he's clearly a monster. He's not an alien. He's not. He wouldn't be an alien anyway because he's from Earth. But he is, for intents and purposes, a classification. A monster but then he is humanoid and um he he is you know his his you can see looking at the structure of his body how he was once human the way that his you know the way the joints work and all that it's not anything trying to be too um you know too too outlandish but his responses are are um were interesting too when he uh, when they crash the ufo and he's released the uh, science patrol attacks he runs away the first time that Ide shoots him, mm-hmm. he shoots him in right. the back. So it's mm-hmm. you know it's 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 um is Jim, is he is he scared? Is he confused? Is he only focused on his goal of you know this of revenge on the people that uh, at the conference? You see, you you get that there's something going on there that obviously he's not just a mindless monster, but he's also not a devious alien either. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Then the um, the actual fight with Ultraman. This one again. Normally, the way that you think of an Ultraman fight, there's a lot of grappling, a lot of uh, you know judo style throws, some chops and jump kicks, and then of course the specium ray at the end. Just because that was the style of fighting that Ultraman was always right. shown to do was judo. So there is a lot of grappling here, but it's this is like a street fight. Um, mm. Jamila, the Jamila's main go-to move is a two-handed choke. He's basically goozling Ultraman and <laughs> just grabbing him and, and trying to just choke him down as they're literally wallowing in mud. And, you know, it's it, there's nothing dynamic or uh, conventionally exciting about this fight, the way that, you, again, you'd think of a, a typical... Uh, blow off fight in an episode right. of Ultraman. Even again, even the previous episode, Overthrow the Surface against Telesodon, that was very moodily lit at night and it was a back and forth type of battle, <laughs> something you'd expect more, again, from a Daikaiju film. Whereas this was, this was kind of, this really to me. It's a sad, the, man. It, this is sad, sad and it is ugly. It is literally ugly because yeah. of all that mud. Yeah, it's. Yeah, it, it gets back to, again, the conversation that uh, I think it's the captain says to Ida at the camp scene is like, we have to do this. He's a threat to the whole world. And yeah, so watching Jamila, you know, his death throws in the mud as he wipes out all the flags and everything and the flags yeah, are in the see, mud. Yeah, the flags are in the mud. I, mean, I was thinking as I'm watching this, I think the water, the water move. I mean, it just seems like such a weird anticlimactic galactic choice to go with water as i think i'm first thinking like, okay is he spraying acid at him is he no it's just water but it works for the whole rest of the scene because you get the down and dirty you get the wrestling in the mud and you get these pretty iconic scenes of so you no know, national flags splattered with mud buried in the mud it just it it is again literally gritty, literally ugly, mm-hmm. and and it's just it's just in that sort of a truest sense, it's pathetic. Yeah, right. It's just a lot of pathos in that. It's like crazy. The the other thing that's worth noting is that um, this this fight doesn't. It ends with the shot of Jamila and all the in the mud and all the flags. Does not have a scene of Ultraman flying away, which we commonly get. Right. Um, and the only, the only other time that that has happened so far in this series was, um, way back, I think it's episode nine with Jiris. Um, uh, I forget the name of that episode, but Jiris was the, um, the, the Godzilla suit with the frill on it. <laughs> and that was done because the story goes that Subaraya thought it would be bad luck for Ultraman to, you know, right. blast and kill Godzilla. He thought it might <laughs> be uh, an ill omen, so they didn't do it. But here, it's, it's more of a story choice. And Yeah, I mean, cutting... because this is, not, this is not glorious victory. Right. This is, 
you know, at, at, at best, this is Ultraman has to do what he has to do. Right. And he's not happy about it. Yeah. The, the follow-on scene from there where Jamila is given a funeral. And I think it's very telling that this is 1966 Japan that he's, and also that it's a Subaraya production. He's given a Christian funeral with a, a cross as yeah. a marker. Um, I love that shot. It's, it's shot from there. The, our, our uh, science patrol is basically in the background and it's done with voiceover. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we get uh, the, the, the captain says that he is, he's buried here on the soil of your home, the earth. Yes. And mm-hmm. what's, what's amazing is that that scene, besides being just lovely, um, a while back, I covered the Ultraman video game, and Jamila is one of the monsters in the game. That scene is in the video game. So oh, wow. when you beat Jamila's stage and you defeat Jamila, he, again, the other monsters explode, uh, and then you have the scene of Ultraman flying away. Jamila just falls to the, to the, the floor of the stage, and then they show the funeral. It's like, yikes, <laughs> just yikes, man. I, I got, I'm getting back to what you were saying earlier. If you're seven years old watching <laughs> this, are you going to make heads or tails out of that? <laughs> One thing I saw on the headstone, I was watching the DVD. It might have been clearer on, on your Blu-rays. But I could have swore it said Jamila 1960 to 1993. Was this supposed to have taken place in the, and it never struck me that this was quote unquote, a futuristic show as I was watching it. No, the, and, and it does say 1993, 1960 to 1993 for, for Jamila on the, on the, the plaque. And what's, what's interesting also is that this show has always seemed to take place in the sixties. Right. Right. In the campfire scene, Alan says he must have spent decades rebuilding his ship. That's true. That's true. And it, okay. And it's specifically tied to the to the space race. So, it's I've seen I've seen this kind of taken either one way or the other. Either okay, this is a continuity error, or maybe the show was supposed to take place in the '90s and all the other shows are supposed to take place after it now. Right. So I, it and you know it, it, that that also again it this 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 story works so well as a one off that. You right. just kind of have to go with it. But that brings it, it, it into my so that 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 brings it into one of my favorite types of sci-fi, the future of the past. Yes. Yes. You know, a story that takes place in the far future but is now far behind us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> it's like destroy all monsters in the far-flung year of 1999, you know? Exactly. <laughs> in 1968, that was a long way away. Uh, speaking of, uh, of Alan at the campfire, mm-hmm. do you think, let me ask you a question. Do you think Jamila was a French astronaut? That was my interpretation. Right. Uh, it was not, I mean, cause, uh, he seemed, I mean, I think there's a reason he knew the story, right? Uh, that, that this was a legend within the, within the French, you know, science and, and space community. It didn't say it in either the sub or the dub, no. but it was sort of in that third person, a, you know, a, a person from a nation. But mm-hmm. that, to me, that, that was the strong implication. Right. Because you, one would suspect, well, from a, from a structure of the screenplay um, or teleplay standpoint, that makes it just vague enough that they don't, you know, say anything. But from a character standpoint, if you'd think if it was a Soviet, that a guy for who represents uh, the the French branch would have no problem throwing the Soviets under the bus in nineteen sixty, <laughs> yeah, exactly. you know, the sixties, or but you know, so so what that I, that's the impression I got too because Alan yeah. immediately says Jamila and he recognizes it for recognizes him for who he is before and and none of the none of the uh, Japanese science patrollers are aware of this so I get that feeling too that this was either a French or maybe just, I mean, this obviously predates the European union, but some, something from Western Europe, yeah. uh, that, that was the, the, uh, the origin of Jamila. Um, now the, the very end of the episode, Ide says, uh, that it's the same for all victims. Only the words are elegant. And it ends on this ambiguous scene of Ide lost in thought as the science patrollers call him because they're, trying to get his attention so they can they can go back to hq i'm presuming Mm -hmm. again very cynical uh i would 
this, this I would again, given when this was made in 1966, we're still in from from the Japanese perspective, we're still in pretty good times here. Economy is doing well. Right. Uh, the country as a whole is doing well. The um, exports are starting to uh, exports and imports are starting are on the rise. The country is doing well. We haven't hit the economic malaise of the 1970s that really did a number on the Japanese economy and the Japanese, uh, uh, I think, uh, zeitgeist, for lack of a better term. I would almost expect this level of cynicism from a 70s show rather than one from right. hip deep, the Showa 60s. <laughs> but but here we are. Now, so it, it, now, it's a bold choice. Now, I, I, I watch these with both the sub and the dub on. Because for, for one thing, the compare and contrast is always fascinating. Mm-hmm. And in the, I guess it would be in the sub, Ide is a little more mixed. He's a, he's not, he's, he is, um, I can't remember which one it was. Um, I mean, there's, there's one where he's, he's adamantly on the, he's a human side. Mm-hmm. And there's, in, in, in the other one, he's a little more in the middle on the spectrum. He's, he's more conflicted and mixed. So they right. do have a character. In that in that version, a character I think who was really supposed to represent the audience in terms of representing you know, the that actual I'm just not sure about this the 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 that that more conflicted aspect than right. the more dramatically opposed side, but it works either way, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I believe that's in the in the sub because Ide is the first one to say that he won't fight him, right. but then the next day. When Jamila is lighting the village on fire, mm-hmm. that's is a the pretty one that says, seat, "Man, yeah." Well, you know, I've I've read in. I'm trying to remember which author it was. It was oh, I'm drawing a blank on which book this was, but it was a Daikaiju book, and they were talking about that one of the reasons visually that Godzilla breathing atomic fire was, and, and just right. fire in general, was so powerful was that you had a nation who the majority of their houses and buildings were still made of wood. Right. And so, a, you know, fire was this thing that could literally wipe out an entire village. And so to have all the, the, the roofs um, and just burned out. And even we see one, uh, the mother of the young boy that runs back to try and save the birds, she becomes overwhelmed by smoke inhalation mm-hmm. and collapses. So it's like, you know, it, it's, it's a, a realistic por- portrayal of, of the, uh, effect of fire but during that scene Ide says do you have no humanity left in your heart you know mm, so again right. that that's mm-hmm. that conflict that Ide is going that he wants to he mm-hmm. doesn't want to fight this uh Jamila who's is a human but at the same time Jamila is not acting like a human Jamila is acting like a monster but so. that's about a three or four minute scene uh, it might not be that long it might just seem that long but it's, it's a couple minutes long of that of the folks you know, fleeing the the village with their possessions, yes. and that that's a convincing scene, and it's intense. And then you've got, of course, the mother looking for the child, and the hero kid, you know, has saved his bird, and then uh, you know Hayata, you know, manages to save the kid. But uh, you know, and 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 that is a, and there's sort of a, a kids programming trope there, but this is dialed up to eleven in terms of the intensity. Yes, it, it really is. He, that again, um, that that scene again, similar to the uh, the monster on the loose scenes in the previous episode, really reminds me more of something you'd see from uh, a film than from a TV show, just mm-hmm. on the uh, mm-hmm. the way that it's shot and produced. Now, of course, obviously, Subaraya's crew knew how to do that kind of stuff. There's no question, and the scale here is a little bit different using a village rather than a city. But it's right. like I said, it gets back to I think what I was saying about the use of the handheld cameras, it's intimate. It's very small scale. We see the individual impact of Jamila's attack on this village of people that didn't do anything to him. You know, uh, simple village folk in rural Japan didn't have anything to do with sending him into space and forgetting about him. Right. But at this point, his, you know, that that it asks the question, is he a monster or is he a man? Um, So... Yeah, this this is a very affecting episode for me. 
I said this to my wife when we were going to, I was watching it in prep for this. Um, my wife's not a Tokusatsu fan. She's watched a little bit of Ultraman with me. I think she more, I don't think, I know she tolerates it more than, than likes it. Um, but I said, I said, this one's different. I said, this one's different how it's shot. It's different how it's, it, how it's story is told. So just, just give it a chance. And I think she appreciated it for, mm-hmm. you know, for being different and, and telling a, an intelligent story rather than, um, now, now there's, there's not to say that there's not entertainment to be had from, um, I'm thinking like the episode with, uh, Aboras and Barilla where two monsters beat the heck out of each other for 20 minutes. <laughs> There's certain entertainment value in that as well, absolutely. But this one made me think a bit more than that one did. So. Yeah, I mean, when I when I got the DVDs a couple of years ago, I just blew through it. You know, in the, I don't know a week or so, whatever. And there's a sense of them running together. I mean, this one stood out, and I sort of knew the legend of this one also. Uh, but it was really going through the episodes the second time around to follow along with you, and then obviously being invited onto this one, paying a lot more attention to it, mm-hmm. that you realize this is special. This isn't just yeah. different. This is special. There, there's a, a, a scene uh, er, er, earlier on where they're having a meeting. Well, there are a couple early scenes. Uh, one is they're um, looking at a, a, a map, but it's on a transparent piece of glass, and mm-hmm. you're shooting from behind. Yes. And that's just, again, a lovely scene. Again, just, you know, where you would, again, sort of, uh, other directors weren't thinking that way. And then another one early on, they're in a building that has some amazing ceiling design on it. Yes. And it almost looks like, I don't know, like a plant, you know, a, 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 a our arboretum or something, but it's, it's tall ceiling, but this this amazing patterned ceiling. And of course, in TV, you hardly ever see ceilings. Most mm-hmm. of your, your sets don't have them. So this is a location of some kind and specifically shooting from the floor up. So you get our heroes, you know, in, in you know, just a, 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 a different view of them, a heroic view of them, but you're seeing this amazing, this amazing, uh, you know, backdrop. Oh, yeah. And and that that's one of the handheld scenes as the, as they're or maybe I think it's actually the the one where they're filming through the through the uh, through the, so that plate glass mirror where yes. it's the camera's moving from person to person you know they're standing in a row having this discussion and the camera's panning from whoever's speaking from one to the other almost like it can't catch up mm-hmm. with the conversation but there's not a cut you know you're not cutting between people. Speaking, you're moving the camera around, and it just gets this kinetic, energetic uh, sense of 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 what's happening, what they're dealing with. Uh, just, and it's it's almost like I think this this director, uh, just just Jisojo, uh, I think part of what he's trying to do, perhaps, is I think he he knows his limitations. He knows the budget limitations. And so the things that look kind of silly, there aren't that much, there isn't that much of that. Right. There isn't a lot of the ships flying or the spaceship because those look pretty cheesy. Mm-hmm. But there, there are scenes during that, you know, during that initial chase where you're panning up the, the science patrol a ship into where Ide and Fuji are discussing and the ship looks great. The interior of the ship looks great. That's a great set. So he uses that. He doesn't show as much of the, uh, you know, of the planes on strings basically, right? Yeah. right? He right. minimizes the use, uh, uh, the, the use of those scenes, maximizes the use of character and other settings and locations. And even as you said, the fight, and the fights can be a little cheesy sometimes. So he eliminates some of the, the the cheesier aspects of the fight and gets to a gritty, ugly, uh, ugly fight scene, which thematically is the story he's telling. And so I think it's just it's a it's a uh, example of knowing what your limitations are and using them. You know, uh, directing. An, an episode within those limitations, understanding what they are, and literally making the best uh, of the hand, of the the cards you're dealt. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, um, you had 
just then you you'd said that you'd kind of knew about the, the the legend a little bit of Jamila. What's interesting is that, um, but very appropriate, is that Jamila is one of the few more well-known Ultra Monsters who really doesn't reappear. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, like the Baltans reappear numerous times, Red King, Zetan, uh, Gamora, Telesodon, so forth. But given the nature of his story, it's hard for Jamila to reappear. Right. The only times, other than cameos and, uh, you know, big monster army scenes, that Jamila reappears is in the 1993 series Ultraman the Ultimate Hero. Now, this was the second um, American, or I shouldn't say American, non-Japanese produced <laughs> Ultraman series after uh, Ultraman um, Towards the Future, uh, which we covered the comic book for, you remember? Yes. Uh, we covered that <laughs> a long time ago. So, But uh, the Ultimate Hero was actually produced in the United States and never aired in the United States, incredibly enough. But uh, rather than create new monsters like they did for Towards the Future, they created new versions of classic monsters, and Jamila was one of them. So there is a, uh, he's oh, referred wow. to as Powered Jamila. He is, his story is similar, but it takes a different tact, and it's not as it's not as confrontational because in, in that um, an astronaut by the name of Jamra is goes to space and returns, but is it's, he's on a mission, I think to Jupiter and he's uh, possessed by like this alien spirit and the spirit starts taking over him and turns him into the giant uh, power mm, Jamila. Okay, right. And so now it's a, it's an internal struggle between Jamila and Jamra and finally, Jamra, you know, is able to get control enough to allow Ultraman to kill him. And so it, it does, you know, it, 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 it's a different riff on it. But to me, that's a slightly more conventional sort of story than we get here, where, you know, it's, it's, it, there's the, it's a question of whether there's any humanity left in him or not. Mm. Uh, that's a series. You had mentioned the, the DVDs and Blu-rays. Mill Creek, of course with the, uh, the settlement of the, the, finally the dismissal of the Chayo suit against Subaraya and Subaraya's ownership of the Ultra Series being restated uh, at the highest courts possible. Basically everything but the Supreme Court. <laughs> right. It's, it's, um, that one, that Mill Creek is releasing all of the Ultra Series. It is whether they will release Towards the Future or The Ultimate Hero. That is, they have not said one way or the other. So I don't know if we'll ever get an official DVD mm-hmm. release of those. Right. I I would really like to see it just because interesting they're they're so in, they're they're so unique, but we don't know that they haven't said one way or the other on that one. In in these days of stay at home and quarantine and all of that, are some of the other Ultraman series more readily available? Certain you know, streaming sites and companies are doing that. Yes. For folks uh, at home, is there been is 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 there a legal and inexpensive way for me to watch some other shows is what I'm asking, Luke? Well, um, I believe at, at the original Ultraman comes and goes off of Hulu. So if okay, you have right. Hulu, you can mm-hmm. you can watch the original Ultraman. Um, if you Mill Creek, as I said, have, have really been knocking it out of the park with their Ultraman releases. And they are Mill Creek's streaming service is called Movie Spree. I believe it's Movie Spree. Uh, like a shopping spree.com. Okay. (laughs) And you can buy digital copies of all of their ultra series on movie spree. And they're pretty reasonably priced. Okay. Um, And if you buy the, um, like I have all the Blu-ray sets that they've released uh, for, they've, the, they've released ultra Q ultra man, ultra seven and uh, return of Ultraman with Ultraman uh ace is due at the end of may as we're recording this for the showas and then they've also done uh for the modern series they've been kind of working backwards they've done uh, uh jeed orb and x and then the uh orb origin series as well which is like the the follow-up series okay. to orb. so and again all, if you buy the physical disc for those you get a free digital right. code for them as well so um, my, my spree account is great because it's all <laughs> Ultraman and then the Hulk Hogan movie, Santa with muscles. That's the only things I have on my <laughs> spree watch instant account. Uh, a classic. If you're an old WCW Nitro fan, you remember Santa with muscles with, with Hollywood Hulk Hogan. Um, 
but yeah, it, it, they are now. They're they're much easier to get a hold of now since the since the settlement of that suit. Oh, true. Good point. Yeah, and and I will say this: um, Mill Creek has done a, as I said, a, a bang up job on not just the discs themselves, because I mean, we both have the old Mill Creek DVD sets, right? And those were pretty nice for budget releases. I've said this they numerous times. Down. You know, for ten, twelve bucks, getting the whole series oh. subtitled and dubbed was not a bad set at all but uh the blu-rays are really really nice but the only thing that the dvds have over the blu-rays and we've talked about this is that there's unless it's an official sub from subaraya like uh, i think the ultraman x movie has an english sub because subaraya commissioned in a, an official english subtitle or excuse me english dub track that played when that movie had some limited engagements in the united states you can't get the dubs so if you like if you like your dubs you can keep your dubs kind of thing uh but only if you keep your dvds so um but yeah other, but other than that they're they are really really nice and their the presentation is beautiful they do for the showa series they do both a regular standard blu-ray edition and then a steel book and what's oh, nice. amazing is that both of them are designed so that when you have them all laid on the shelf they all look like they're from the same series. The The packaging right, is consistent. Nice. Good. They're really, really sharp. That makes a difference. Yeah, it really does. I mean, in this in this day and age, you know, that's a little thing where it doesn't, it doesn't cost you any more to produce the set. It just costs you a little bit of time up front to do the design, and it just <laughs> looks so nice when you get it all. Um, it is frustrating with the TV shows or movies where you, you line them up on your shelf, and even if they're just off a little bit, Yes. It's like, okay, why did you drop the title a half inch on season three, but not season four? And why is that a slightly different shade of red for the logo? You know, whatever it is. It's like, <laughs> you're, just, you're, you're throwing my, my OCD comic collecting DVD organizing head into a, in, into a tizzy. Mm-hmm. Why yeah. do you do that? <laughs> why do you do that to me? Why you got to be that way? One, one and, other and, thing I, I did want to mention just as an A. Oh, go ahead, Helen. And I, I, I don't want to get too controversial and start a whole new discussion, but I prefer subs over dubs. I'm just leaving it there. Move on, Luke. <laughs> well, you know, in, in this day and age, that's uh, the I, – I, I, I'll, I'll, tr- I'll attempt to be brief. Um, <laughs> what, what's the line from uh, Princess Bride? Uh, let me explain. Not too much. Let me sum up. Um, so there's – especially with the release of the Criterion – uh, Showa Godzilla box set um, where there was no, except for uh, they did include copies of Godzilla King of the Monsters and the English version of King Kong versus Godzilla. There's no English language anywhere on that set for the majority of the films. Oh, wow. Right. And mm. the um, there, there's, there's a few that have them, but the majority of them don't. And the reason for that is, well, we want to present it as originally created by the filmmakers as close to their vision as possible. So that I think has kind of started this evaluation of dubs versus subs once again. Now, growing up when I did in the VHS era, dubs is what you got. So I'm used to a lot of those classic dubs for, especially the Godzilla films, the Gamera ones, there's always been a couple of different dubs available. So that's a little bit, a little bit more uh, loosey goosey to use a technical term. But for these, I, you know, I never watched, having never watched Ultraman as a kid with the dubs, I usually watch them with the subs, but I will a lot of times for this show do like you do and watch both. Right. So that you can get an idea of how they, how things were changed or um, maybe uh, every now and again, you get a scene that was cut entirely where where Mm. you can see it was never dubbed. Oh, right, right. Yeah. So well, that, just, explain, that, that explains it. Yeah. <laughs> I was curious like, when, the, when, when the English would drop out for a time. Yeah. Every now, it, there's, you get that every now and again dealing with, not so much with, with the tokusatsu, but where you get that a lot is, uh, we saw this on my, one of my other shows, on the Vault of Startling Monster or Tales of Terror, where the movie that springs to mind immediately is the Argento movie Deep Red, where in, there are scenes that were cut out of the U.S. release so they never had a dub. So even if you're watching it in English, there'll be scenes that just the middle of the scene will switch back to Italian with subtitles back and <laughs> right. forth. 
And it's like, oh, okay, that's uh, that's a totally different voice for David Hemmings there. But but <laughs> the uh, but yeah, I, I I do prefer subs as well, especially now with the Blu-rays and and just even on DVD in general, it's re- it's so easy to they're they're because they're they're generated subtitles, so they're much easier to read the soft subs mm-hmm. and the, the old right. hard subs sometimes. Mm-hmm. So um, one other thing I, I do just want to mention, this is kind of a, a, a side note. So in 2000, um, uh, Shusuke Kaneko, who uh, was you know, the, the creative force behind the Heisei Gamera films, he was approached by Toho to do a Godzilla movie. And this was for the Millennium series where you know basically each movie stood on its own. And one of the concepts that Kaneko created um, is was didn't really have a name, but it generally goes by the name Godzilla versus M. And I know what you're thinking, not that M. Um, or Godzilla versus Uch- uh, Uchikujin or some other names like that. The story was very similar to the story of Jamila in that it involved an astronaut going out, returning to Earth, discovering that he was infected with some kind of a space bug and slowly turning into this monster. Mm-hmm. Now, so I just thought it was interesting that even 35 years after the fact, that that concept of space being this great unknown and a human being touched by that and returning to Earth was still being considered and still a story that had potential for new avenues to explore and, uh, you know, new uh, new stories to tell with that concept. Now, of course, that film was never made. Eventually, um, Kaneko switched directions into uh, what would eventually become Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah, all giant monsters attack, uh, going in a uh, much more more of a supernatural direction rather than a science fiction direction. But I, that always, I remember reading about that at the time and thinking, wow, this really sounds like Jamila. And then everyone else kind of made the same right. connection too. So I just, just again, just when I when I, I said, oh, I got to got to mention that because that would have been. As much as I enjoy GMK, and GMK is such a well-regarded film, would have been interesting to see a much more, um, not not much more original, but a, an original sort of uh, take, a new creation from Kaneko, rather than using the classic monsters like he ended up doing. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, if we haven't sold it for you at this point, folks, I, I'm not sure what else we can tell you. This is... Uh, <laughs> well, I'll tell you, my, a, my last... My... Last sentence in my notes are, wow, this was good. Yes. With an, with an exclamation point. <laughs> yeah, it really is. We're, we're in, the series has definitely hit its stride at this point as far as turning out just good, entertaining stories week to week, whether it's Monster on the Loose or whether it leans more towards Cold War or whether it's something that makes you think. Uh, the series has really hit it. And you can really now see kind of the... Um, the, the fingerprints, not only the fingerprints of like Eiji Tsuburaya, but the fingerprints of the men that worked on this show and why this is the concept that still endures to this day. Why That's this is what say. Ultra yeah, exactly. yeah, This right. is what Ultra is, is because of stuff like this. So mm-hmm. very good. Um, and uh, as, as Alan and I said, you can get this set from or this episode uh, via the Mill Creek Blu-rays. Uh, or DVDs, which are available on on Amazon. So please go check those out. the The Blu-rays are very affordable. They're like twenty. They're like twenty four dollars. Now, I, I one thing I love about Mill Creek, Mill Creek does great work. They do a lot of obscure stuff. They do a lot of independent stuff. But they're they're a they're a, a value friendly brand. They do a lot of <laughs> a lot of their stuff is not super. Even their Blu-rays, like a Blu-ray, like they have they do a series of uh, VHS retro style Blu-rays where it has a slipcase that looks like a VHS cover. And, you know, they're like 12 bucks a piece. It's like, you know what, that's uh, 12 bucks for a first run. Speaking my language, Luke. Yeah. Hey, man, I got four. I, I got kids. I know how it goes. I need this job. But I need that DeMonzo money. <laughs> Waiting any day for that check to show up. But um, so, yeah, so, yeah, you, these are you can readily get um, Ultraman and the other ultra series and uh, Mill Creek has been, like I said, they've been pounding them out. I mean, we're going to get, they're saying, I think by like 2022, we're supposed to have the entire series done here. So it's like, Oh my gosh, wow. how many thousand wow. episodes <laughs> to watch? But, uh, 
but yeah, so um, that was, like I said, th- this is this is a standout one. So uh, definitely, please check this out. And uh, if you check it out, write in or destruction directive at yahoo.com. I'd love to hear everyone's thoughts on on Jamila on this episode on Ultraman in, in general. Really appreciate that. So, uh, Alan, um, thank you again for joining us. This has been wonderful. I'm really glad um, we had a chance to discuss this. Look, we always say it when we're guests, but this time I really mean it. This one was a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, I mean, but but seriously, I'm not the only ultra fan that you've had on the show or as listeners, but to have, to have been tapped to cover this one. I really appreciate it. Oh, I, I, I knew that. I knew that this would be a good one for you. And I discuss, so I'm glad that uh, you were able to make it. So uh, for the benefit of those at home, why don't you tell uh, our listeners where else they can uh, hear you on the Internet? Well, most of what I do is comic book related and can be found at Relatively Geeky, the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. And that feed includes the Quarter Bin Podcast, which talks about the best kind of comic books, cheap comic books. Mm-hmm. The second best type of comic books, one's about Dr. Doom. We cover that in Doom Speak. And sometimes when those worlds come together, oh, glorious. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Comics Reading Journal and then uh, the Short Box Showcase. And then a few years back, uh, me and M started a side project called Dorkness to Light, uh, where we uh, talk about the intersection of pop culture and faith, religion, spirituality, that sort of thing, because that's a, also a particular interest of ours. And again, thank you for having me on for this momentous Ultraman <laughs> episode. Absolutely. And uh, I, I will go ahead and I always plug relative, Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. I've been a quarter bin fan since the beginning. That is true. Uh, so <laughs> I always, always at the top of my list uh, whenever a new quarter bin comes out. So please go check those out. Um, and, uh, so, um, this is, you know, we're always looking towards the future here on our destruction directive, even though we typically live in the past, but we always have to, you know, <laughs> go forward, not backward, upward, not forward and always twirling. So what are we covering <laughs> next time on our destruction directive? Well, we're jumping back over to Godzilla. It's been a little while since we've done a live action Godzilla and we are going a few years into the future from this episode. We are taking a look at Godzilla versus Hedra, a.k.a. Godzilla versus the Smog Monster. And uh, looking forward to this one. Been a long time since I've seen this one. Uh, one of these, um, you know, uh, 70s films that I think is due for something of a reevaluation for me just because of I'm in a different point in uh, in my life uh, watching these and, and uh, seeing what Yoshimitsu Bano was, was doing with this film. So definitely uh, looking forward to that. So please come back and, and join me then. Um, would like to, of course, say that uh, appreciate everyone downloading, listening to the episode, and that want to say, of course, that Earth Destruction Directive is for everyone. If you are interested in Japanese giant monsters and being part of the show, you are welcome here. All are welcome always at the Earth Destruction Directive. So, uh, Alan, thank you again for joining me. Always a pleasure to talk to you about anything, but especially Ultraman. <laughs> well, thank you for the invitation. And, uh, uh, folks out there, I hope you enjoyed the show. Again, please come back and join us next time for Godzilla vs. Hedra. And until then, keep them stomping. This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Dai Kaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. 
If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I'll read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find the show on iTunes. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave an iTunes review if you want. You can get in touch with the show on Facebook. Just search for Earth Destruction as the first name and Directive as the last name. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter with the handle LJacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head on over to TwoTrueFreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Any items you buy during your session on Amazon.com will help keep the lights on and it won't cost you anything extra. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun on Earth Destruction Directive. Tune in next time to hear the crusty old podcaster from Oklahoma say, There's a WTF (laughs) moment if I ever saw one. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.